Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, I'm going to bring on Steve Erickson, who's going to introduce the event, but we have to applaud Steve to get all these writers here at the same time in this room. So let's thank you, Steve. <laughs> Steve Erickson is a Los Angeles literary fixture. Please welcome. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming to to this um, event uh, for Black Clock Magazine. Um, uh, since uh, the first issue uh, about seven years ago now, um, you know we've we've liked to think. I, I mean, I've sort of been uh, I've sort of been berated by my staff for never producing a mission statement as such for uh, the magazine. But if we had a mission statement. Uh, we would like to think that this is a, a, a magazine that's not about concepts and packaging, but about visions and voices. And uh, it's a magazine for writers. That was our intention from the beginning. Um, and a magazine where, uh, where writers can take uh, uh, chances by not feeling like they always had to be perfect. Um, we've published uh, work over the last 13 issues that's been anthologized in Best of the Year collections, uh, that's been in O'Henry collections, uh, Pushcart Prizes, uh, in the case of two um, excerpted novels, um, uh, a, a couple of National Book Awards. Uh, and the writers who've appeared in the magazine have included Don DeLillo, Richard Powers, uh, Joanna Scott, Greil Marcus, Brian Evanson, uh, Darcy Steinke, uh, Jeff Nicholson, uh, Michael Ventura, Diana Wagman, Samuel R. Delaney, all of whom are in the uh, new issue number 13 which we call our mixtape issue. We've um, republished uh, work from the first 12, uh, the first 12 magazines. Um, uh, it, it's important, I think, to emphasize that not remotely is the new issue meant to be a greatest hits, uh, uh, because um, it, it, rather we wanted to, we wanted a magazine that we felt would uh, reflect, or we wanted an issue that we felt would reflect what the magazine has been so far. And that's a mix of, of renowned voices and more and more new voices. And I think uh, the point is perhaps best made by, um, by uh, those who are not included in, uh, in this current issue. They include Carlos Ruiz Zafan, Catherine Dunn, uh, Christopher Sorrentino, uh, Ben Marcus, Glenn David Gold, um, Samantha Dunn, Miranda July, Jeffrey O'Brien, uh, William T. Volman, uh, whose story Operation Hagen. More and more as the magazine evolves, it, it means to be a venue for uh, new writers who don't have a venue elsewhere. And uh, over the course of the first 12 issues. We've uh, published uh, 50 writers who I think we can reasonably call discoveries of Black Clock. Um, uh, they were uh, uh, people who, um, who uh, poets, essayists, short story writers, novelists, who were coming from other walks of life, including uh, journalism, uh, teaching, librarians, uh, bookstore managers, uh, park rangers. Uh, we've had a, a former sex worker, uh, an actor who uh, was uh, better known up until then for playing maniacs in cult films. So uh, this is um, this has strived to be a uh, to be um, a uh, debut venue for uh, more and more new writers. Um, and I think that as uh, the magazine goes on, uh, that will be more and more the case. 
there are some people I want to thank before we get started and before I introduce um, our readers today. I want to thank um, the president of CalArts, Stephen Levine. I want to thank the provost, Nancy Usher. Uh, I want to thank uh, the Dean of Critical Studies, Nancy Wood, and the MFA Writing Program. They've all been big supporters of uh, the magazine, uh, always there when, uh, when, we needed, um, when we needed them, when our, the budget came up short, or when, for whatever reason, uh, uh, we, uh, we could use somebody coming through in a pinch, and uh, these people all have. I want to thank Margaret Crane, uh, who is uh, the publicist. I want to thank Gail Swanland, who originally designed the magazine. Uh, I want to thank uh, John Wagner, who's kind of the founding father of the magazine. It was, uh, it was his brainstorm almost 10 years ago to start this magazine, and I was very fortunate in that he asked me to do it. I want to thank um, uh, the Blackhawks staff. Uh, Doug Mattis, who did a great job working with Skylight Books. Uh, to um, to arrange this event, Katie Manderfield, who did such a great job publicizing the event, Sarah Giroux, Patricia Cram, uh, Rachel Kolb, Seth Blake, Byron Campbell, Justice Cadell, uh, Chrysanthi Tan, who've all who've all worked really hard to make uh, to make the magazine possible. I want to thank Christopher Morabito, who is our heroic art director and designed such a beautiful magazine. I want to thank Joe Malazzo, who's done such a fabulous job on uh, the Blackhawk website. I want to thank our three editors at large, uh, Anthony Miller, Dwayne Moser, and David Eulen, for uh, uh, the constant uh, flow of ideas and energy and effort that uh, has, uh, has helped to make this possible. And finally, um, there's three people in particular I want to cite. Uh, they are Michael Simmering, uh, Kyung Kim, and Bruce Bauman. Uh, they're sort of the firewall between me and insanity. Uh, and uh, uh, they, I think uh, all they hear from me most of the time is, is a general sustained crankiness rather than uh, the gratitude that they are due. And without these three people, without Michael, Kyung, and Bruce, there simply would not be a magazine. And I thank you guys. Um, the five writers who are reading today from Black Hawk have uh, appeared in uh, the magazine a total of 22 times. So I think that's indicative of the extent to which they, um, uh, to, to, to which they've, you know, uh, uh, contributed to, um, to the identity of what, of what this magazine uh, uh, has become. Um, our first reader is uh, Janet Fitch. Janet is uh, the author of a uh, such acclaimed novels as Painted Black and White Oleander, which was a selection of the Oprah Book Club. Uh, her fourth novel will be published uh, next year. And the Chicago Sun-Times wrote about her in dysfunctional family narratives, Fitch is to fiction what Eugene O'Neill is to drama. Uh, the Publishers Weekly said she writes with prose that penetrates the inner life with immediacy and bite. And the Los Angeles Times Book Review has called her an artist of the very highest order, Janet Fitch. <laughs> I know why I came. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm going to, uh, I think I'm first chronologically. Uh, this is a, a book, um, a story set in the 1920s here in Los Angeles um, that morphed into the novel I'm writing now. And you have to try to imagine a Russian voice. My ac Russian accent is really bad, uh, so I won't press it too hard. <clears throat> It's called Room 721. At seven in the evening, the sky flames histrionically in the west over the crest of Bunker Hill, 
Well, in the east is serene indigo pools over downtown Los Angeles. A crescent moon drifts in its currents. I'm trying to read this new man, Elliot. It's giving me a headache. That, or perhaps, it is the glancing blow the guest at the Alexandria struck this morning when I baptized him in a tub full of cold water. Mr. Norton, our famous clairvoyant. There was little choice. He was face down in his own vomit, medical syringe still in his arm, curled behind the bathroom door of room 721. Overdosed in all the Alexandria's bourgeois luxury. How thin he was, how wry, his dethroned elegance as the bellhop and I poured sugared coffee down his gullet. Such gallantry. Sad. But I understand, sometimes one needs relief. Oh, this impossible English. I shove Mr. Elliot in a drawer along with the dictionary, take up my own weapons against futility, hairbrush and lip rouge and coal. Time for a little relief of my own. I descend the six flights of stairs to the vegetarian cafe at Third and Hill, my steps paralleled by the train, Angel's Flight. My concession to thrift, pay the five cents for the upward ride to my boarding house at the top of the hill, but always walk down. The cabbage soup is why I come. Though I always hated it, now 10,000 miles from Russian soil I crave it, strong smelling and flavored with nutmeg. Like every emigre, I wallow shamelessly in nostalgia, surrounded by these pale girls and serious young men in glasses, all members, no doubt, of the vegetarian party and cripples. Never have I seen so many cripples as I have since landing in this Elba. They flock here like wintering geese and never leave. <coughs> After that meager repast, I walk down Third Street, mingle with the crowd, drift and window shop. There is comfort in numbers and in the iambic pentameter of my own two feet. Strands of hair tickle my cheeks. It is September in Los Angeles, hot, a month recognizable only on a calendar. Even at our worst, there was always autumn. In Russia, we would be mushroom hunting. Now even that has been lost. Along Broadway, the windows of the department stores display merchandise rich enough to make me weep thinking of shoes I made from a carpet, Sidioja's turned coat, the coal oil we burned in the apartment on the Fontanka, a miracle we hadn't all been asphyxiated. A streetcar rattles down the center of the boulevard, disgorging a throng of entertainment seekers who quickly disperse into the portals of the movie palaces, the Million Dollar, the Orpheum, the Pantages. I let myself be swept along by the chattering crowd and pay the exorbitant 75 cents admission. It is Saturday night. In Petrograd, the lights are on again after the years of darkness. There are again movies, but the rest has been lost. Better not to see it. I climb the rich carpeted stairs to the Pantages balcony where I can smoke and watch the review which precedes the show. I wonder how the narcoman in 721 is spending his resurrection. A young man, two seats away, asks, what'd you say? And I realized I had spoken aloud. He is beautiful. This is what I was hoping for, the simplicity of beauty, a sun without shadow, without a stain. He sits at the edge of a group of young men who all turn to look at the dark-haired woman in the black cloche, their row of tanned and golden-haired young gods, a line of angels. He has his foot on the rail and his popcorn at ready. I light a cigarette. The house lights dim and extinguish themselves and the stage lights flare. The review is eternal, singers, a tango couple, and then the inevitable line of girls, the precision dance. This is what the modern era aspires to, whether American or Soviet or fascist, the precision of every girl in her place, high-kicking impersonal legs like pistons in an internal combustion engine, hypnotic and nauseating, a perfect vision of multiplicity, like a visit to the Ford Motor Company. Modern man loves nothing more than an assembly line. The man sings to a line of girls and they sway a ripple of pink flesh. High. It is young Achilles, now separated from his friends, having moved into the seat adjoining mine. On stage, a girl breaks from the line and performs a cartwheel, ending in a split. 
I pray the rest will not follow suit. I hope one will fall and knock the others down. Something unexpected, but as usual, I am disappointed. Why can't just one girl ever interrupt the machine, the in ingenuity of these unfolding patterns? But it's plain to see it's not going to be that kind of century. The boy glances at his cadres. I wonder if this is not some side of, kind of dare. Perhaps he is the last to lose his virginity and they're encouraging him. Well, he has found the right girl. Pretty swell, huh? He asks nervously, about 19, with curly golden hair, slick back from a well-formed brow, the last virgin. I like the idea, though I must be wrong. This No boy this lovely could escape the great maw of sex. Impossibly fresh face behind the sophistication of brilliantine and cigarette, solidly bourgeois. Father probably a manager of a factory or owner of a cement works, though it is probably real estate. Every citizen of Los Angeles is speculating, even my fellow housemaids at the Alexandria. In the locker room, it is all talk of plots in Tropico, El Sereno, Canoga Park, buying, selling the following week, buying again, profit based upon nothing. I am no Marxist, but the lack of actual production is absurd. It's a South Sea bubble all over again. The Dutch tulip craze. Can't they see it's like watching a fossilized mastodon recover its flesh and trumpet up Hill Street. The boy smells of bay rum as he leans in, commenting on the show. I cannot believe my good fortune. I want to touch the solid arms and shoulders filling his light summer jacket. He wrestles, I imagine, or boxes, or runs long distance. American boys are mad for sport, as ours were once mad for poetry and politics. The newsreel illustrates for us the facts of the day. The German inflation strikes in the Ruhr. Harding's man fall denies payoff for oil leases. Film stars vacation aboard William Hearst's yacht. Men punch each other in a corded ring. I'm for Dempsey, the boy confides to me. I nod. I'm glad he's for Dempsey. After all, what can I, for what can I declare myself with such certainty? Nothing. I am for nothing but the September wind, and even that only with a degree of irony. The film is the big parade with John Gilbert. How long ago the war seems, just a dot disappearing. America only had a year of it and saved the day like a herd of cowboys. But the film tells me they did not return unscathed. The film is marked by sentimentality, the, the sub-theme of salvation through love, when anyone who had lived through the winter of 1920 could tell you love saves no one. Afterwards, I am introduced to Achilles and his fair Achaeans, Tim, Tom, Frank, Skip, and Bob. All of these plosives, K and T and B, the chop of American names, short as an axe bite. No Volodya or Mishinka, no Sirioja, Tim, Tom. They are, I am told, members of the USC varsity swim team. <laughs> One more attractive than the next, these Tims and Toms. I'm invited to go on a party with them and I do not hesitate. I could very well find myself in bed with a host of angels. Disgraceful in the extreme, but delightful nonetheless. Short of arrest, no one cares what I do. I, can I cannot imagine the guest in 721 would blame me. Thank you. Thanks very much, Janet. Um, Lisa Teasley is uh, the author of Dive, Heat Signature, and the award-winning Glow in the Dark. She's also the writer and presenter of the BBC television documentary, High School Prom. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle has called her a daring and original voice. And the Los Angeles Times has praised her gritty, unflinching, yet empathetic vision from the precipice of contemporary America. Uh, her words, the village voice has written, light up the plunge into the abyss. Lisa Teasley.
Thank you, Steve. I'm so honored to be here. Oh, thank you. How does that sound? Good? Okay. So I'm going to read to you from Joie de Vivre. Josephine Meeker figures it's the least she deserves when dropping her last clean article of clothing, a yellow silk summer dress, on the blood and sawdust floor of the Flop House in Edison, New Jersey. That's what her mother would call it, Flop House, if she could see the squalor in which her only daughter lives with two carpenters whose boss has ceased paying them for the foreclosed remodel. For four months, she's been peeing in a tall plexiglass cup, defecating in a bucket, and rinsing out the rotating two plates and single wine glass in the bathroom sink. Spinks, the neighbor bull mastiff, bit Olin, the foreclosed owner who came for his courthouse mail. The bite was bad, bad enough that she had to call the ambulance. Or was it he who called the ambulance? And away he was taken, the EMT's manner grave, alarming Josephine. Daily she's been playing with Spinks. He lets himself out of the gated fence to take himself on walks and stop in for a visit. It's her secret with Spinks, since his owners never suspect he leaves the yard. This is the impression they give when she mentions loving him and his joie de vivre, that he bit Olin is baffling. Spink carries himself passively for his breed. She wonders if she shouldn't clean up the blood, change her torn, soiled clothes, and just leave. This would be her second cleanup since Arthur's pathological meltdown with the prong in the kitchen. It may as well have been today, time converging on itself in this vacuum she lives in. Ramsey isn't there to foil Arthur. He isn't present to calm him down. Arthur hates vinyl siding, has been installing it all day across town, his nerves frayed and bent, wondering when the bank would come and scoop the house out from under them. She didn't mean to point out that they could have gotten that last paycheck from Olin if they had bothered to side over the tar paper. She didn't mean to go on about the used green condoms she found behind his filthy foam bed. She didn't mean to write his guilt about everything. After these incidents of guilt riding when she's on top of him, Arthur says passionate things in her ear like, I drink coffee made of your shit. He gets the idea from a travel show they'd seen on how the Vietnamese brew the berries weasel have, weasels have made waste of. Josephine continues to ignore the reasons for his utterances of what she considers love and devotion such as, burn me my eternal sunshine and heaven is the sweet cream of your pussy. These mostly come after her discoveries of infidelities, such as the fresh fruit prostitutes who arrive with the delivery of apples and strawberries as sham, then do the real business as the, pump, as the pimp waits in the car. She knows about the nights at Perth Amboy where Arthur buys the girls $6 drinks for lap caresses when he sometimes doesn't have $6 for their $1.99 breakfasts at the greasy spoon around the corner. Welcome to Jersey, Josephine would say to herself after the last fruit delivery, and don't I deserve it. As she sweeps, the dust motes animate like beings, and she tries lifting off with them until it is as if she has an aerial view of her own body. But the ceiling remains an impenetrable blip. She coughs, sneezes, feels the world pack in as stuffy and thick as the air, as humid as Jersey's always is, as confining as this house has been. She must find a way to really get above and beyond the broken ships of space. Josephine is from Truckee, California, in the Sierra Nevada mountains where she's lived a high-altitude, clean life of nature and worship not worship of God so much as divine wonder at the oneness she feels with water, hills, and woods. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Josephine hears the two lines as one, no pause. The Lord is a shepherd she does not want. At the Piscastaway Church and Cemetery, a hop, skip, and jump from the flop house, Pastor Downs sets her straight on the meaning of the line. She is not embarrassed, but rather proud of her original assumption. She never would be under the influence of the church, not like Arthur, who clearly distorts the role of Jesus, or worse yet, her father, who refuses her mother the mercy of an assisted suicide. 
Josephine has no one to blame but herself in leaving her mountain resort job in Truckee, as well as her dog's keen sense of joie de vivre, to follow some alcoholic carpenter who swears on his mother's life that he never loved another like he loved her. Never mind Arthur follows Ramsey when he could be working for himself. When Arthur calls her his soulmate, she knows it's really Ramsey that is his soulmate, as he continues to traipse after him in search of the next convenient job where they can sit on the porch, smoke pot, drink beer, and watch squirrels twirl on the feeder. How is it that she now sees her own blood clotting? The incident with Spinks, Spinks being Olin seems no more than half an hour ago. It's more like a nightmare right here in the middle of the daytime kitchen. This daytime vision of spewing blood, trying to wobble her way away from Arthur. But this happens in the dark, a contradiction. She sees a light not so far from here, and instead of moving to the music, the music moves to her. Isn't it really the foreclosed upon Olin who is truly the lost one, hard on his luck, lying up in some hospital bed, his wife having left him for a biker dude, taking the kids while she's at it, as Olin resides in an apartment over a bar, drinking himself to a sulk every day. It was in the newspaper that someone broke into the library. But it was really Olin who'd fallen asleep there after reading the paper and getting himself locked in overnight. He had to break out and in the morning they assumed that someone broke in. Olin admits this to Josephine because he trusts her, just like Spinks does. She knows she has this purity to her, this sweet smell, this sweet taste, this shimmer. It's not only Arthur who tells her, it's, it's almost everyone. She cannot count the times she's been called angel. Sawdust collects in her nose, but it does not seem to move with the broom. It's a time warp, a time bend she experiences with every strand of straw between her fingers as she checks and rechecks them. The prick, the stiff that must be at the end of each straw, leaves a nothing kind of feeling. The pads of her fingers are numb. Arthur, she calls, now hearing him at the front door. Finally he is here. He appears in the kitchen, moving in that vulpine way, cool and hectic at once. He breathes in deeply, exhales a bluster, rubs his eyes like they itch, like he's not really seeing her. She says, you heard what happened, I guess, my love? The neighbors tell you? Spinks bit Olin, what a mess. The ambulance came for him, I was waiting for you. We should go to the hospital, don't you think? Irritated, Arthur only looks up at the ceiling. He hasn't laid eyes on her. Josephine drops the broom. He doesn't seem to hear it. It's not my fault, you know. I love that dog. Olin scared him. He was protecting me. Wish he was here right now. Arthur looks in her direction, but not at her, rather through her. He looks up at the ceiling again. He puts his thumb and forefinger on his forehead like a visor. What about it, she asks. What's up there that's so interesting to you? Josephine feels herself getting angry now. He can do whatever he likes. He can have a few beers, get high, play maggot brain really loud and sit stoned in the corner, reach for her hand, denigrate her for not getting it, for not getting him. Or he could even hit her, fuck her when she's not quite ready, but just don't ignore her like he's doing right now. Arthur. What is that fucking rancid smell in here, man? What the fuck is rotting? Ramsey asked, dirty boots tracking the squared body pushing past her. It's not like Ramsey at all. He's usually almost gentlemanly around her. That's why and how she'd ever allowed him to touch her. Josephine puts her hands on her hips. You hear me, dude? You need to clean up around here for once. Ever since Josephine left, you've been acting like God knows what. Something just ain't right. It's more than missing a woman. Just tell me what the fuck it is, dog. You're starting to scare me. You're starting to scare me, Josephine exclaims on tiptoe, standing directly between them. She squints in Ramsey's face. She pushes her breasts out like pillows of wellness, not on seductive purpose, not like the time she elicits a massage. She never gets that thing about crossing the river Styx, but remembers thinking she crosses the river Styx as Ramsey massages her. Two more weeks of this shit and I'm out of here too, Ramsey says. What's that mean, says Arthur. It means I'm off to Philly, finally settle this thing with my aunt's estate. I don't need to be here one more minute, man. Go. 
Arthur folds his top lip, the yellow teeth gleam with spit. He purses his mouth, his eyes go big like a baby's. It really does stink. Ramsey turns around, Josephine hops out of his way, puts her hands again on her narrow hips. Arthur, stop it. Stop what? Ramsey asked before leaving. Who the fuck are you talking to? Me, he's talking to me. I don't smell a thing, Ramsey. Ramsey flips his hand like a girl and walks out of the kitchen. Josephine's mother would put her told you so expression on at this very minute. If she were here, she would, but where is she? Josephine goes over this again in her head. At the funeral, her mother's minister says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And Josephine yells just behind his ears, that's right, I do not want. How many times do I have to tell you I do not want? How many times? How many times? After Josephine helps her mother get to heaven, she thinks she would be rid of that hovering, hyperbolic image, that told you so expression, the disappointment, that eternal waiting on Josephine to get it right. I'll stop right there, thank you. Thanks very much, Lisa. Jonathan Lethem uh, is the author of Motherless Brooklyn, The Fortress of Solitude, Chronic City, The Forthcoming, The Ecstasy of Influence. He's the recipient of a MacArthur Grant and the National Book Critics Circle Award. The New York Times Book Review has called his work astonishing, knowing, and exuberant with beautiful drunken sentences that somehow managed to walk a straight line. While the Washington Post has called him brilliant, evocative, and engaging, one of the most elegant stylists in the country who's capable of spinning surreal scenes that are equal parts noir and comedy. I would add on a personal note that uh, Jonathan is also afflicted with an almost congenital generosity, which is to say he finds it hard to say no, and uh, I actually feel bad about this, but <laughs> I get over that and ask him again anyway. Jonathan Lee. Thanks, Steve. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's nice to see you all. Um, the last time I stood here, we're uh, reading from the same book. I, uh, there was a person dressed as a kangaroo in the audience. So I just want to register my disappointment tonight. <laughs> Partitioned from the majority of Los Angeles's kangaroos who reclined in a gaggle under the tree shade on a tan, scrubby hill, ostracized instead in a concrete pit beneath the lip of the embankment which had given her her name, Shelf the Flyer sprawled in desultory glamour. Flyer is the real word for a f uh, female kangaroo. Shelf the Flyer sprawled in desultory glamour. Truthfully, she looked miserable on her back, displaying piebald stomach, one leg cocked to the sky in a forlorn show of submission to no one in particular, to her zoo fate. The pavement of her angled asylum was stained here and there with pissy or vomity streaks, the floor scattered with sun-bleached tatters of uneaten salad. Lucinda, gripping the Polaroid camera, tilted her body as far as she could over the rim of the enclosure and snapped Shelf's portrait. The camera obediently chugged out its product. Lucinda unsheathed the pregnant black square and began wagging it in the dry air. I can't get that song out of my head, said Denise. I, I should have said at the beginning. These are two women walking through the LA Zoo talking about uh, the band they're in, which they think is just uh, broken through the ceiling of its potential. I can't get that song out of my head, said Denise. What song? You know, Monster Eyes. What about it? I don't know, the tune, the riff, the words, whole thing. Bedwin's gotten sicker, I mean mentally, but more of an incredible genius, too. Yeah, Lucinda admitted, it's really good. The zoo was a maze of circular trails disordered by construction, paths barred by scaffolding, displays shielded with plywood. The visible animals seemed to stand off-kilter on their outcroppings, their portion of raw, scraped land disguised as a place. 
a ram with an erection, tiptoed the sculpted ridge of an artificial mountaintop, pacing an ooh who darted on the flip side of their finite mental kingdom. Monkeys dripped from a distant palm, more fruit than creature, refusing to dance. A coyote exasperated the limit of his cage, end to end, sniffing distance from hills he might have known. Turtles peddled in dust, twitching stones. Big-headed hogs rustled under a shed's cover. The zoo was an abrasion where Los Angeles's arid skeleton knuckled into evidence. Lucinda pocketed her snapshot and they walked, searching for the smaller birds and lizards, the depressed little poems veiled in foliage. The band's horoscope today said, a new venture or long-range goal will be given a shot of confidence, said Denise. I think it meant the new song. The band's horoscope? <laughs> I read it every week. The band was born on February 16th. We might be more fetal at this point, said Lucinda. We need to play a gig and a name. We, we need a name. <laughs> we need more good songs, said Denise. We have some good songs, said Lucinda. Hell is for Buildings sounded really great last night. We need more. And Canary in a Coke Machine needs a better ending. Also, Bedouin needs to learn to stand up while he plays. He can't sit when we're on stage. Maybe we could get him a really high chair. That would be weird. <laughs> Maybe we'll get a gig at Silver Lake, Silver Lake Lounge or Detour. Or maybe Spaceland. Why not just go straight to Spaceland and then somebody will see us and we'll get signed? <laughs> maybe you could write new lyrics to Sarah Valentine, mused Denise. Maybe the problem is the lyrics. Who is Sarah Valentine anyway? It's sort of a cursed song. I think Bedwin went out with a Sarah for about five minutes. I didn't realize Bedwin could shake hands with a woman in five minutes. I thought he'd be more the pining unspoken for years type. I always assumed Sarah was someone who didn't even know there was a song about her. Matthew looks good though, said Denise. He's getting more like a real lead singer. What do you mean, said Lucinda, like a real singer? You know, said Denise, just much sexier and more relaxed the way he stands at the microphone with his toes pointed together and slurs the words like he just thought them up and can barely be bothered to pronounce the consonants. Like how he sang the new song. You know what I'm talking about. Lucinda didn't speak, finding themselves panting from their ascent to the monkey terraces and from the band talk. All their feverish notions, they quit walking, parked in front of a lemur with cartoon hobo eyes. They turned to each other with flushed cheeks. Do you think Matthew is happy in the band, said Denise? I think he's depressed, said Lucinda. She tried to dispel her irritation at the word she'd failed to pretend she hadn't heard. Sexier than, for instance, what? I think his life is practically falling apart, she said. Really, said Denise? He seemed okay to me. He's terrible. Do you think he'll leave the band? Never, said Lucinda. It's all he has. What about you? I love the band, said Lucinda. The band is perfect. Quit worrying about the band. It's even better now that he and I have broken up. Really, I think a lot of the great rock and roll bands are founded in breakups. Love triangles, love-hate situations. The band couldn't be better. Lucinda silenced herself in disgust. She took Denise's arm, tugged the smaller woman to her, so they stood hip to hip. They stepped in tandem, feeling an alliance beyond the grasp of language. The girls in the nameless band, the rhythm section. They turned their back on the dewy, moonish lemur, the implacable smudge of life on its steel perch in the leaves. Let's go back and see that mountain goat with his crazy red penis. Maybe he'll catch the female goat and fuck her. He'll never catch her. She always stays on the other side of that little fake mountain. The zoo made a mistake. They brought the wrong goats. She doesn't like him. He's going slowly insane. Maybe, said Denise, but maybe she'll let him catch her. I think it might be today. I want to see. I bet they fuck all night, said Lucinda. Every night, all night, when we're not looking. A little bit of the next section, and then I'll stop. Um, this is after a, a gig, or excuse me, after a, um, a practice. Tang's Donuts on the corner of Sunset and Fountain was unmistakably a place where bands went to reconnoiter and celebrate after playing shows. The others recognized this at once. Of course, ordinarily bands would have arrived there at two or three or four in the morning. 
Oh, yeah, they did just play a gig. Yeah, sorry. The first one ever. Uh, after gigs build for later hours than this evening had attained. For Denise and Lucinda's band, their big Friday night had just been slanted, had been slanted pitiably early. Other bands were just now twisting together their microphone stands and tap, taping down their cord, dictating names for the guest list to the doorman. But it was Tang's special distinction that within its doors, any hour after nightfall might as well have been four in the morning. The same traffic buzzed past on Sunset and Fountain, isolating Tang's like a reef in time. The same elderly chess opponents in the same vintage suits nudged pawns across scares at the s squares at the same booths under the same clicking, humming fluorescent fixtures, ignoring the traffic at Tang's counter as they'd ignore it at any later hour, as though installed there by some miraculous time-traveling hand that had plucked them out of a coffee house in 1930s Vienna, or from a Shanghai den full of opium den full of mahjong players. The same trays of cold, congealed muffins lay untouched and unloved in rows within the fingerprint-layered lead glass cases, while Tang's customers queued for the same piping hot <coughs> piping hot buttermilk donuts, not torus-shaped, but rather formed in irregular lumps, clumps, <laughs> merely fr flash-fried dough with a browned, horny crust, which gave way to peachy yellow fluff inside, too hot to eat if your timing was lucky and you badgered the drowsy, indifferent counterman to serve you from the cooling racks in the kitchen behind him. The band's members were lucky tonight, and as they crowded at their booth, they juggled steaming buttermilk dough fragments between their fingers and lips, gobbling them when they could stand to. Here, after all, was why you wanted to be on stage, play a triumphant gig, in order to eat Tang's buttermilk donuts afterward. <laughs> True, you could come here after merely seeing a live show. They'd each done that. So perhaps you sought glory in order not only to sit at Tang's, but to feel you deserved to, and be certain that later others would ask, what the band had done after the gig, and the answer would be, you know, tangs. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, like Jonathan, one of the first writers we got in Blackhawk was uh, Amy Bender. Uh, and when we had Jonathan a and Amy, we kind of felt like we were on to something. Uh, Amy is the author of The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake, Willful Creatures, and The Girl in the Flammable Skirt. Uh, her short, short fiction has been published in Granta, Harper's, The Paris Review, and Tin House. The New York Times has called her work fanciful and original, intelligent and engaging. And the Washington Post has said of it, new, exciting, harsh, rugged, and unyielding. Every sentence is a fresh surprise. And one has to admire the Detroit Free Press has written Bender's originality and her ability to produce stories that make one grateful for being ordinary. Amy Bender. Uh, thank you, Steve. And I just want to say, you know, my appreciation for Black Clock and for Steve Erickson, who's such a generous and uh, expansive person to run a magazine. So as a writer and an editor, so just wanted to say that. I think we're all grateful. Um, all right, I'm gonna read a portion of the story in this, in this latest one. It's called On a Saturday Afternoon. I have known them for at least three years, these two. We all went to school together and at one point I dated the blonde, but it was brief. The timing was off and both of us were swept along by the river of another match. I have flirted with the brown-haired one for years. I have this fantasy, I say one evening, when all of us are slightly drunk, sitting on my apartment steps on Gardner on a clear July evening. Would you come back, four o'clock, Saturday? Sure, they tell me, curious. The word marked by brake lights and bitten fingernails. Everybody facing out. We all hold hands at once, and we're all lonely when we go home. But this is helpful, this hand-holding, this sitting on the stoop of my apartment building, watching while other people look for parking. I have recently broken up with someone who I did not expect to break up with. And every morning, the earliest time I wake up is suffused with remembering. I can't seem to beat that moment, no matter how early I rise. 
I once thought if I traveled in France, I would have a different brain, the brain of a girl who travels in France. <laughs> I saw myself skipping through meadows in a yellow and blue print dress. But even with the old buildings, with the bright, bready smells, with the painted French sunlight, it was still my same brain in there, chomping as usual, just fed this time by baguettes and brie. In the mornings, I write long circular journal entries when I wake up, too early, before work. But even though I'm making steady proclamations about who I'll go for next and why and how it will all be different, it is brutal to imagine the idea of meeting a new person, going through the same routine, saying the same phrases I have now said many times, the big statements, the grand revelations about my childhood and character, the cautious revealings of insecurities. I have said them all already, and they sit now in the minds of those people who are out living lives I have no access to anymore. A while ago, this sharing was tremendous. Now the idea of facing a new person and speaking the same core sentences seems like a mistake, an error of integrity. Surely it is not good for my own mind to make myself into a speech like that. The only major untouched field of discussion will have to do with this feeling, this tiredness, this exact speech. The next person I love I will sit across from in silence. We'll have to learn it from each other some other way. On Saturday, there's a knock at the door right at four and I open it up. Hi, hi, hi. We're all joking and nervous and they brought beer. Me too. I usher them in. My apartment sometimes reminds people of a warehouse. The space is high and elongated and feels empty. The living room is a stripe. It's too narrow to watch TV in, so I put the furniture on a diagonal. They both look great, thriving, out of control. These are solid men with square kneecaps and loving mothers who are still sort of awed by women. They have a line of fur instead of hair at the napes of their necks, sometimes dusting the hinge of their cleanly shaven jaws. Me, I'm clothed and workmanlike in overalls with many pockets. A red tank top, legs covered. They've had crushes on me at some point and me on them, but everyone knew that friendship was best, and it is in this spirit that they walk through my door. They're good at the greeting hug routine. There's a wild fondness in the air. We grab beers, twist off, fling bottle caps into the air. They're friends with each other too. Sometimes they play soccer together. They said they would do what I asked them to. That's the agreement. It's a four o'clock afternoon and the July sun is lazy and inviting and it's a second floor apartment so it's always a little warm from the rising heat. And here are these two men I've captured inside my house wearing worn white t-shirts. One of them has a stain right in the middle from the peach cobbler he ate at lunch, left over from the potluck he went to Friday night at Janet's. He is the type everyone gives their leftovers to at the end of the party because they know he will eat them and he does. Somehow this makes me proud. Whenever these two walk down hallways or through crosswalks in their tall boyishness, I feel a surge of pride that is faintly motherly and also not. I want to fuck and birth them at the same time. <laughs> Today they have another beer. Me too. We joke around. We play bottle cap hockey. I serve cookies on a chipped green plate. They eat them fast. They have sweet tooths, they say. One prefers the chocolate chip. The other enjoys the texture of oatmeal. They're deep in the stripe by the windows at its end and I sit down in the chair that I've placed closer to the door. Stay over there, I tell them as they swallow the last two bites off the plate. All right, they say. They sprawl out on the carpet, hands propping up their heads and they know how to own space, how to feel important without realizing it. They have never questioned their right to be alive. It is born in them and obvious. One is wearing shorts and has blonde hair all over his knees like poured milk from a glass bottle. Okay, I say after the third beer is finished. I bring out tequila. I give us each two shots. Down, down, down. Then, just touch hands, I say. One touches his own hands. No, I say his, his hand. Touch that. It takes until just now for them to realize I want them to touch each other. They have assumed they'll be touching me. 
I don't have shoes on, but I have the rest on and maybe a ponytail. I'm in the day. Just touch hands, I say, gently. Please. They look bewildered, not upset, just unsure. They will need my constant reassurance. This is why I will not feel left out. It's okay, I tell them. Just feel his arm, maybe the back of his neck. Just see what it feels like. The sun slants through the curtains as their two hands reach over and they sort of grab at first and then relax. They explore the knuckles, the wrists, the elbows. They don't giggle, but there is some nervous shifting, some more drinking from beers, wet barley lips. One is from Oklahoma and came out west to direct movies. The other lived in Oregon in a clapboard house where, with an attic where he gathered bird nests from trees. They remember their first kiss with a girl, the years of masturbating in the shower before their sisters would bang on the door, yelling about hot water. They're touching each other's arms now with freckles, with downy hair. Touch his stomach, I say to both. Four eyes beam up at me, frightened. It's okay, I say. It's for me, I say. Please. And their hands, shaking slightly, reach down under the loose t-shirts and just glance over their stomachs, which have tiny lines of sweat forming in the creases from sitting. I'll stop there. Thank you, Amy. Uh, our last reader tonight is uh, Susan Strait. Uh, the Los Angeles Times uh, has said that Susan writes about Paloma the way F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about Long Island. She's the author of, among other books, High Wire Moon, A Million Nightingales, and last year's Take One Candle, Light a Room. Uh, she's received the Lannan Literary Award and has been a finalist for the National Book Award. She turns headlines into poetry, says the New York Times Book Review. And Newsday has said there's no voice like Susan Straits. She's a major writer who has created her own world and her own place is and her own place in contemporary American literature. Uh, the novelist laureate of the Southern California hinterlands, Susan Strait. Dang, that's a lot of people. <laughs> I thought there was just this many people. I, I wanted to. Say, I really wanted to say thanks to Steve as well. When I got that very first issue of Black Clock, I was like, I want to be in here. And I remember that story so vividly, um, Amy's story. I remember everybody's stories. I wanted to be in Black Clock really badly, and I was trying to figure out how to do it. You know, so I actually tried to find Bruce Bowman's email, but I couldn't, and I was gonna say, please let me in Black Clock. And then Steve, I met him somewhere, and um, I've written stories for Black Clock that I, I couldn't have written anywhere else. In fact, um, I'm really grateful because I've been working for eight years on this series of stories about a murdered prostitute who is the most beautiful woman in this whole community. And my, the four stories that I've written about her that I care about the most, I wrote for Steve for Black Clock. And I didn't know really for sure who had killed her until I just wrote the last story, Alfonso. So I was really glad he was still taking stories. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been in trouble. Um, all that came together for me, and I was able to write the novel. So I wouldn't have been able to write the last novel if not for um for Steve and for Bruce and everyone else. And also, thanks to the, to the editors and art director and everyone. When it comes in the mail, I just spend the whole afternoon looking at it as soon as I'm done with work. The covers are always beautiful, and the inside illustrations are gorgeous, aren't they? Like, I'm always really proud to be in this magazine. It's very beautiful. And I'm not just saying that because you know I'm not good at lying because it's just too complicated. But the, 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 there are covers that I take to my classes and I show them and they say, this is how lucky we are. I really want to check out Slate too. I think we're really lucky to have beautiful magazines like this in Southern California. So I'm going to read you a little bit about um, Her Royal Highness, which uh, is, is the dead woman. <laughs> Can't believe I spent eight years writing about a dead woman. Um, my kids find it hilarious. So. They're like, are you ever going to write about anybody else except for that dead chick? <laughs> like, maybe. <laughs> so, 
Glorette is the most beautiful woman, you know, in the world. And she's this person I used to ride the bus with in South Central when I went to USC. And I used to ride the bus down, downtown to work. And I never spoke to her. But she was the most beautiful woman in the world. Um, and so that's how she looks. So you'll have to imagine her. And um, this story's about her. When Sydney came out of the taqueria and headed down the alley, he saw Glorette Picard on her knees. Sorry. Her back to a shopping cart parked near the fence. Her face held up toward the shadows made by two wild tobacco trees that grew along the chain link. Sydney flattened himself against the wall, holding the bag of tacos like a school lunch, and waited for the sound of a man's voice. She must be on her knees waiting. The man would be against the fence, getting his money, or the drugs. Gorette had been sprung for years, living here on the west side, moving from apartment to apartment just ahead of the rent. Sydney had heard from Chess that Glorette and her best friend Sishia worked together regular rounds near the Launderland now because that's where one crew sold rock from the dryers. But he didn't hear anything except the back of his shirt rubbing against the stucco, loosening a few rough grains. Glorette's eyes were open. She was about 20 feet away. Her face was upturned, her lips parted like she was having trouble breathing, and her neck curved long and golden. Her neck, that made his nature rise. How the hell was he hearing his father's head in his head? Boy, when your nature rise, you gotta watch who you with. Sydney had never been with Glorette. Why was it always her neck he had wanted when they were young? Who kissed her neck now? None of the men along Palm Avenue who stopped in cars and trucks or brought her back here to the alley cared about her neck. Throat was inside the neck. Sydney had danced with her once in high school and let his lips brush down along the side of her neck as if it were an accident when he shifted and she had shivered. But she was with Chess then and after that she met a musician from Detroit, an older guy, and when he disappeared she was 17 and pregnant. He stepped away from the wall but she didn't turn her head. She was focused on the shadows. She didn't see him or she did and she didn't care. Hey, it's me, Sidney Chabert. Remember? The alley lit up like heat lightning flashed, but it was June. It wouldn't rain for months in Rio Seco. The silver flashes were from a huge SUV coming down the other segment of the alley, behind the Launderland. The glare turned Glorette into a small, crouched figure behind the cart. Sidney slid around the corner of the taqueria. Those boys, the ones who sold the rock, they had a brand new navigator, the sound system pounding so hard, the drum shock collected in his sternum. Spongy marrow inside the sternum. Sidney walked quickly around to the front doorway of the taqueria. Now his heart beat hard behind the sternum. Surgeons cracked open the sternum to get to the heart. Back when he worked at the hospital, he listened to the doctors in the hallways and the cafeteria, the neck and the throat. The first time he had thought of the difference, he was 19, brand new custodian, and the words floated all around his cart, inflamed throat, broken neck. Tongue and brain. She didn't choose me. The taqueria's glass door was covered with hand-painted fra hand phrases, tacos de lengua, tacos de cabeza. He didn't want to see the man in the alley, but he wanted to wait for her. He pushed open the door. Glorette was from Surat. It wasn't even a neighborhood like the west side, not like Rio Seco. It was another world. One long dirt road that led to a small bridge over the canal, and then a narrow gravel road wound through oranges, I'm sorry, wound through tunnels of orange trees to ten wooden bungalows. Two men from Surat, Louisiana, Mr. Antoine and Mr. Picard, had come to California. They had five girls. All the girls in that neighborhood were beautiful, but no one looked like Glorette. He went inside the taqueria and sat at the table he had just vacated. His plastic container of hot sauce was still there, a straw. He had forgotten to leave her a straw that night, five years ago. He found her in the ER when he wheeled his cart past, collecting pre-dawn trash. Glorette peered at him from the bank of plastic chairs. Ain't you? Her huge amber eyes shimmered with fever, and she coughed so deep in her chest, it sounded like cellophane crackled behind her ribs. Her lungs must have been black 
from crack smoke and torn from coughing, Sidney thought. He had frozen there while she stared at him. Legs, lungs didn't weigh much when the surgeon cut one out and left it in the medical waste bag, the red bag. She said to him, Sydney, right? You graduated, huh? I missed the last three months. I learned all I needed to learn by then. She coughed again and grinned up at him. Even with all the smoking and the streets, her teeth were still white as mints, her neck marked with only one creased line, like faint jewelry. I learned when her brother said he got protection, that don't mean no, he know how to use it. Sydney looked away at the old man in the wheelchair by the door. You want to marry me? Clarette had whispered then. Sidney felt his forehead crease tight and dry from the heat of the hospital basement and the incinerators. He was ashamed at what he carried in his cart, what he had to burn for extra money down there in the basement. What? That's what y'all used to say in school. All of you West Side fools. Just marry me, baby, she murmured, and she coughed again until her eyes watered. She raised her face to him and then said, but you wanted to put me in your crib and then trip, like, do I think about you all day while you're at work? Or am I studying some fool, right? Didn't you ask me back then? They had all asked her something. Baby, marry me. Come over here by the lockers with me, baby. Help me out with this pain I got, baby. Take down that hair and let me see it on your back, baby. Give me some of that, and I swear I'll give you every dollar I got in the world. The shopping cart had moved closer to the wild tobacco trees. Curled inside, when he went back from the taqueria's doorway, was a shape. Gorette was sleeping. But homeless people never slept inside a cart. Even if the cart was their hoopty, like the only transportation they had, no one fit inside a cart. But, Gor but Gorette was small. He moved closer along the chain link, and in the light from the single yellow street lamp, he saw something glittering at her bare toe. She must be so damn tired to sleep like that, take a nap slumped with one arm across her chest and her feet up awkwardly. He couldn't see her face yet, but her long black hair that was always in a bun, it was loose. It fell through the slats at the back of the cart and lay in the dirt. He felt the shock inside his jeans, all that hair. Everybody always wanted to see that hair. The navigator, the drums. Sidney flattened himself against the fence. The plastic slats through the chain, I'm sorry, through the diamonds of chain link danced and shimmered with the vibration from the car. The world leapt with the drums. The yellow flowers, like macaroni, dangled from the wild tobacco tree hiding him. They shook until the car turned away. But Clarette didn't stir. Her hair poured from the cart like black ferns cascading from a cave wall. The cave where the hero hid out while he rested, got himself together, made his plans for how he was going to rescue somebody. He didn't want to wake her. She wouldn't even remember him if she was this high. And that would kill him on a night like tonight because he had nothing to do but eat these tacos and watch this anime. Damn, he'd left the video on the table next to the hot sauce and then... The wind moved the palm frond suddenly, the sweet whispering, and a rat shot across the phone line across him, above him. The rat scrabbled for a minute on the taqueria roof and then disappeared. The night was warm and dry, but the rats would be working. Sidney couldn't leave the tamales like he'd left the chocolate milk. He had dropped the tamales. Wait. Glorette hadn't moved. Her arm curved around her waist. She was small, but she had rounded breasts and a perfect behind, the perfect, I'm sorry, the foolish sprung nation wardrobe of yoga pants, exercise bra, and red high heels. He came closer. The left heel pushed out from the cart like a stick. The toe ring was a sparkly flower of red jewels. He could pick her up and move her to, but she couldn't sleep in the launderland, or the bushes, or the taqueria. He reached into the cart and moved her hair from her face. Her eyes were open. She wasn't sleeping. Her neck was bent too far to the left, and two small half moons filled with blood marked her collarbone. Thank you.
Thanks very much, Susan. I want to thank all of our uh, writers today. I want to thank uh, Skylight Books and all the guys who helped make this possible. Uh, the writers are going to, uh, we're going to set something up here and the writers will sign books and magazines and uh, um, whatever else. And um, uh, at, uh, at, at the risk of sounding like a TV commercial at 2 a.m., if you buy a copy of Black Clock 13, you get a back issue for free. So that's our deal for, uh, for today. And um, uh, I uh, hope to see you all in six months for Black Clock 14, which includes uh, work by Joseph McElroy, Lynn Tillman, Rick Moody, and many others. So thank you for coming, everybody. Let's thank Steve Erickson, yay, for all of that work, all of that work. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.